Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. So today's episode, I have the historical story. And I have the spooky, shorter online stories. Awesome. Awesome. Trying to think. Um, Don't think we have any announcements today. Um, Besides the, uh, the usual, which is... If we have any pictures, images associated with our stories, we'll post those on our Instagram so you can check them out there. Also, if you would like to write in to us to, um, a story for us to read on the podcast, you are more than welcome to do so. They can be true. They can be completely made up as long as they're spooky. Um, we would love that. You can email them to us at SpookySuitPodcast801 at gmail.com, or you can DM them to us on our Instagram. Yes, please send them in. I'm ready. Just, right. Let's just dive in. Sounds good. Okay, cool. So I was recently listening to one of my all-time favorite songs, which is Then Came the Last Days of May by Blue Oyster Cult. I had never really paid attention to the lyrics, but this time I did. And if you aren't familiar with the lyrics, I have them for you. Parched land, no desert sand. Sun is just a dot, and a little bit of water goes a long way because it's hot. Three good buddies were laughing and smoking in the back of a rented Ford. They couldn't know they weren't going far. Each one with the money in his pocket could go out and buy himself a brand new car. But they all held the money they had, money they hoped would take them very far. Skies bright, the traffic light, now and then a truck. They hadn't seen a cop around all day. What luck. They brought everything they needed in bags and scales to weigh the stuff. The driver said the border's just over the bluff. It wasn't until the car suddenly stopped in the middle of a cold and barren place and the other guy turned and spilled three boys' blood did they know a trap had been laid. They're okay the last days of May, but I'll be breathing dry air. I'm leaving soon. The others are already there. You wouldn't be interested in coming along instead of staying here. It said the West is nice this time of year. That's what they say. All right, so those are the lyrics. And if you hadn't caught it yet, it's about a drug deal gone wrong at the border of Mexico. And having recently watched No Country for Old Men for my first time, which is about a drug deal gone wrong, I felt inspired to look into this further. Turns out, Blue Oyster Cult wrote this song based on a true story from their hometown. In the early days of Blue Oyster Cult's history, they were playing at smaller gigs and trying to make some cash. One school they played at was Stony Brook University in their hometown of Long Island. The story goes that the three Long Island college-aged guys, David Anderson, John Gast, and William Tate, got in contact with two brothers in Tucson, Arizona, who promised to sell the New Yorkers a ton of weed. We're talking a bulk purchase of $59,000 worth of weed in 1970. Unbeknownst to the three men from Long Island, the steal was a sham, and the two 18-year-old brothers never intended to sell any weed. The brothers were actually from a well-off family that was well-known in Tucson. They took the three men who had all traveled all the way from New York out to the desert where they promised the deal would take place, but of course that never happened. 
The brothers shot all three men and left them for dead. But one of the three men survived his wounds and was able to identify the brothers for the police, which led to their arrest. Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult actually knew one of the guys who was murdered, which inspired him to write Then Came the Last Days of May, which is such a tragic story, but one of my favorite songs. It's so good. And there's just something about the slow solo guitar that makes it sound like a cold desert night. And if you haven't listened, do it right now. It's one of the best songs ever. (laughs) And so knowing that, it makes me want to do more research into my favorite songs just to see if any have spooky historical backings so that I can share them with the listeners. Yeah, I, uh, sorry, chime in for a sec. Um, One of my all-time favorite songs, I think it, I think it's because like when it came out, I don't know. I just listen to it all the time, um, but it's pumped up kicks. Yeah, you yeah. know that song by yeah. Foster the People. Yeah, do you, do you know what it's about? Um, I know it's whispered that it's about Columbine. Yeah, yeah, it's about the Columbine shooting. Um, but when you first listen to it, you're just like a guy talking about kids with with some nice kicks. And he's, like, kicks. jealous of their shoes or yeah, something. Yeah, but, I mean, if it's true that it's based off the Columbine shooting, then, geez, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yet, here we are dancing to it and yeah, just chilling. <laughs> yeah, whoops. All righty. So, this next story comes to you from r slash scary stories, posted by 1000 Adenondites. My mom died suddenly about four months ago, but that wasn't the worst thing. My mom died quite suddenly and unexpectedly of a hospital infection about four months ago, but that, if you can believe it, wasn't the worst thing. Nor was the fact that her younger sister, my aunt, took up with dad less than two months after her death. The worst was yet to come. It started on a dull evening. I just had supper with my aunt and dad barely tolerating her bright, friendly chatter about school. I went upstairs to my room as soon as I could to do homework. I stared at my laptop screen, pretending to look at my assignment, but in reality, I was swimming in grief and missing mom. I couldn't concentrate on anything since she died. I minimized the assignment tab and looked at the photo I used as a background. It was taken a few years ago, a happy family occasion, my mom and aunt sitting side by side, so like yet unlike my dad next to my mom and i was leaning against him all of us were smiling mom had both her arms stretched out around her sister and her husband the chat box in the bottom left hand corner of my screen began flashing i was mildly surprised it was an older app that no one really used anymore i had been meaning to delete it and then i froze mom's little image blinked in the chat box and then the words popped up Hello, Thelma. It's me, Mom. Fear gripped my throat. I knew it must be some hacking thing or stupid error, but I was paralyzed. I turned around and glanced at my bedroom door. It was closed, although the sounds of TV coming from the living room were still wafting in. Aunt Claudia had the TV on whenever she was downstairs, even if she was not watching it. Don't be scared, Thelma. It's really me. I found a way to talk to you, my darling, precious child. I've been missing you so much. If this was a hacker's joke, it was the cruelest joke in the world. Against my will, tears began welling in my eyes, spilling out. 
Oh, my darling, please don't cry. It's okay. And it's no use crying anyways. I need you to save that energy. My fingers still stiff from fear. I managed to type out my response. Mom? What do you mean? Is that really you? I could sense her familiar frustration rushing back through the laptop. Same as when she felt I wasn't being smart or strong enough when she was alive. Of course, Thelma, it's me. And I've come back to tell you something important. I had my own important news to share. Did you know Aunt Claudia moved in last weekend? Yes, Thelma, I know. And this is what gave me the strength to come and tell you. Please be strong. I know you are a strong girl and you can deal with this. I'm so sorry you have to, but you have to know. I have to tell you. She can't have everything. My life, man, house, child. A different kind of fear took over me. Mom, what do you mean? Thelma, I'm sorry to put this on you like this. I don't know what else to do. You have to know. Aunt Claudia murdered me. The bottom of my world gave way as I dropped into a dark hole of dread and fear. I felt as if I had known this all along, all through the past four months, ever since that awful night when Aunt Claudia called from the hospital where she worked to talk to Dad. I just couldn't say it. Thelma, are you listening to me? If I had any doubts that the laptop chat was really my mom, those words dispelled them. I heard them in the exact voice she always used to say those very words to me. Yes, Mom, but how? She was at the hospital, you know, when I went in. She wasn't on my floor, but it was very easy for her to arrange for me to pick up an infection. Thelma? The door opened and Aunt Claudia poked her head in. I gave a little scream and frantically minimized the chat box. Aunt Claudia stepped forward. Oh, honey, you look like you've seen a ghost. Are you okay? Wordlessly, I nodded. Aunt Claudia sighed. Thelma, sweetheart, I miss your mom too, but this moping isn't doing you any good. It's hurting your dad, you know. Do you want him to suffer more? I shrugged. I couldn't speak. I looked up at her. The light was odd on her face. She looked more like mom than ever before, but also not. And these clothes, Thelma. She reached out and touched the back of my sleeve, and I flinched back as though she had hit me. She frowned, and for an instant, I thought she was actually going to slap me. But then she smiled and said, I know girls your age like to wear black all over, but what do you say you and me have a trip to the mall to pick up some nice new gear on me? Come on, sweetheart, it'll be so much fun. I shook my head furiously. Tears of rage, grief, and fear splattered out. Aunt Claudia began again, oh, Thelma. But then she stopped and went quiet. I looked up at her face. She was pale and had a horrible expression. She was staring at my laptop. I followed her line of sight, turning around to look at my screen. The photo had changed. There was a new photo in the background, showing Mom seemingly asleep in a hospital bed, and Aunt Claudia by her side bent over. Aunt Claudia seemed to jolt into life. Her face twisted in a terrible snarl, and she screamed, Are you playing tricks on me? And she lunged at me. I cringed back in my chair, raising my hands to defend myself against her onslaught. But before she could even touch me, a bolt of electricity sprang from the laptop, hit her square in the chest, and she dropped dead to the floor. I shrieked in terror. Dad and I had to move from that town. Losing two wives in four months isn't a good look for anyone. Even though the police combed through our statements and the laptop and the electricity up and down, 
They eventually had to put it down to a freak accident, which happened when I asked my aunt for help to get my laptop working. Dad never remarried, and I never heard from mom again. Yo. Hey. I love that the mom came back for vengeance. She was like, girl, you gonna steal my man? <laughs> like, not in my house. <laughs> <laughs> not in my house. Not now. Not ever. <laughs> you ready? I'm so ready. I'm so excited for your story. Buckle up, because it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, yeah. Okay. Anyways. Um, <coughs> so, one of my absolute all-time favorite places to go when I was a kid was Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, my aunt would take my cousins and I there and just let us loose. My one cousin and I collected as many tickets as we could and definitely had a competition on who could collect the most. Now, as an adult, I completely understand the benefit of taking kids to, tuck, to Chuck E. Cheese. It's so that the parents can get a break. <laughs> right. And you just have, like, the giant animatronic babysitting them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was really good at this one game, um, and, I'll, and I'll try and explain it as best as I can, but it's uh, there's multiple lights that are in a... That, go, that are in a circle. And a light, um, it travels by bulb, and it goes in a circle, 360. And then as you want to try and press the button as soon as it gets closest to the bulb straight in front of the button. And then, of course, if you do, you get, you know, if you, if you get it right on the bulb in front of you, then you get the jackpot. But if you get it close, you get, you get like, more tickets than if you were farther away, you know. I remember that game. You know game. what I'm talking about? Okay, cool. I hated that game. I, I was I was really good at it. Uh, I could never win. Nickelcade has all my nickels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so those were those were some good times as as a kid. And uh, on top of all the games, you have the jungle gym, the uh, mediocre pizza, and of course the creepy animatronic show that would play by the mouse himself and his band of pizza mascots. But recently, um, I say recently, but a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, a film was released in theaters and on Peacock called Five Nights at Freddy's. But did you know that that movie was based off a video game? Yes. Did you know that that video game was based off a true story? No, I did not know that. Today, I'm going to tell you the true story behind Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh, this is awesome. I had no idea this was a thing. Mm -hmm. So Colorado was seeing an intense wave of crime. And this was like 80s, 90s. Um, robberies, murders, and other horrible crimes were being committed all throughout the state. All of these crimes were committed by young teens. And some who were in their early 20s, but just young people in general. A professor at a local university coined the term for these uh, these misfits, the super predator. Um, Nathan Dunlap was one of them. Dunlap was a wannabe gangster who sold drugs off and on and would rob places for cash. And in 1993, he was arrested five times on misdemeanor charges. So you're probably thinking, who is this Nathan Dunlap? Jesse, what are you talking about? Why are you bringing this guy in here? Nathan Dunlap was born April 8, 1974. He grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and later moved to Colorado in 1984. 
He was raised by his mother and stepfather. His biological father, though, was not in the picture. Dunlap had a troubled upbringing due to his mother struggling with mental health issues. When he was in high school, he was evaluated by a psychologist and was diagnosed with hypomania. For those who don't know, hypomania is a condition in which you display revved up energy or activity level mood or behavior. The new energized you is recognized by others as beyond your usual self. And that's quoted from the clevelandclinic.org. So, it's legit. Yeah. Seeing that being a gangster was the cool thing to do, he committed several armed robberies at the age of 15. His weapon of choice was a golf club until he eventually moved up to firearms. So now let's fast forward to May of 1993. Dunlap is working at his local family favorite restaurant, Chuck E. Cheese. He is extremely upset over the over his scheduled hours. When he confronted his manager about this, an argument ensued. I couldn't find the reason for Dunlap being so heated over his schedule, but I'm guessing it just had to do with, you know, probably working at nights or, you know, whatever it is. He was, he was just upset. The conversation was so heated that the manager pretty much had enough and fired Dunlap on the spot. In a fit of rage and embarrassment, Dunlap ripped off his name tag and stormed out of the restaurant. But right before he was about to walk out the front door, he turned to a coworker and proclaimed that he will get revenge. If it's the last thing he does. On December 14th, 1993, he entered the Chuck E. Cheese that he was fired from. Dunlap, being a hungry boy, ordered a ham and cheese sandwich. He then played some shooter games, and when he was done eating and playing... He hid away in the men's restroom until the last of the customers had left for the evening. And just a pre, just a just a side note, at this point, months had gone by and pretty much a whole new staff of kids had been hired. You know, it's just teenagers, they come and go. So no one recognized him. No one really knew him. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And also a side note, the manager that fired him was not working this night. Fifty year old Margaret Kohlberg anxiously monitored the clock nearing 10 p.m. on that fateful Tuesday night. Her crew, agitated after a prolonged family birthday party at the Aurora location, was finally preparing to leave. Margaret, responsible for tallying the night's receipts, planned to head home once her teenage workers had all departed. Sylvia Crowell, a 19-year-old juggling full-time work and college, cleaned the salad bar. Nearby, a high school junior, Ben Grant, operated the vacuum, drowning out the ambient noise of the arcade games and the colorful animatronics. Colleen O'Connor, distracted by the news of her parents gifting her a car, assisted with the closing. And in the kitchen, Bobby Stevens, needing extra cash for his wife and seven-month-old baby, diligently scrubbed away at the many empty pizza tins and plates. The routine of closing was familiar and on its way. The crew was almost ready to go home. Suddenly, Dunlap burst out from the restroom. He approached Sylvia and, without warning, shot her in the head. He then targeted Ben, who who did not hear the first shot as it was drowned out by the very loud vacuum. Ben was shot in the eye. Colleen, now seeing her two friends and coworkers shot and bleeding, she gets down on her knees and begs for her life to be spared. She looks up and sees a young man she does not know. 
She looks into his eyes and sees nothing but empty darkness. Don't shoot. I won't tell, she pleaded. I have to, Dunlap said as he pulled the trigger for the third time. Bobby, in the kitchen, he heard the gunshots, but continued working. He assumed it was harmless noise or his co-workers popping balloons. Dunlap enters the kitchen where he sees Bobby by the big sink. Bobby turns around, looks at Dunlap, and in a, conf in a confused state, Bobby says, Hello? Dunlap stares back, raises his arm, and fires a shot right at Bobby's jaw. Dunlap then leaves the kitchen and enters the office where Margaret was counting receipts. He, points, he, pointing the gun at her head, demanded she open the safe. She complied with his demands. The shooter uttered a brief thank you before shooting Margaret in the ear. While she bleeds out on the floor, he fires a second shot that goes straight through her other ear. Dunlap looted Margaret's bag, filled it with various items, including game tokens and $1,591 before making a quick exit. Six 25 caliber shell casings littered the floor, marking a brief but horrifying spree. Dunlap was able to make his escape and fled the scene, but Bobby was still alive. He was able to make a run to a nearby home and alert them of what just transpired at the Chuck E. Cheese. The cops were called, and with Bobby's testimony and other witnesses who claimed they saw Dunlap at the restaurant before he went into the men's restroom to hide, they, went, they took that information and they went to Dunlap's apartment, which he shared with his mother. There, he took, there they took Dunlap's clothes for evidence, and 12 hours later, he was arrested for the murders. On May 17, 1996, Nathan Dunlap was sentenced to death, but was later overturned. Dunlap is currently locked up in the Colorado State Penitentiary. If you would like, you can look up the interview with Nathan Dunlap on what was going through his head, why he killed those people, and it's honestly pretty disturbing. He gives no remorse, and you can clearly see that in, that in the video. It is titled, Capital Punishment, Decision to Kill, Nathan Dunlap. I'm going to play a few clips for you right now, and if you're still curious to hear more, you can check it out on YouTube. When did you decide that you were going to rob the place? Probably by July. September, October. Did you know that you were going to kill whoever was in there? No. Yeah, they were on 9.20. About 9.20? Yeah. You guys noticed it. It was pretty slow, or, you know, there wasn't really no way around and stuff. So I was like, well, you know, I could go ahead and do this, you know. And so I started looking and I started thinking well all I can do is I gotta shoot these people so I'm like okay well we'll shoot and so I started you know I was just while I'm doing everything else eating and playing video games stuff I'm just keeping an eye on people find out who's there who's going to be working who it is I gotta shoot and stuff and uh they all had one thing in common they didn't know me and because I didn't, I didn't have no association with them, to me, their life wasn't nothing, to me. To you, they were like what? They, their life wasn't nothing. When I saw the last couple at the counter, getting their little prizes and stuff, I went to the men's room. You go into the men's room, and you look in the mirror. Right. You know, I, was, I was still kind of iffy on it. And, you know, I went ahead and 
kind of, like I said, hyped myself up and came out and started shooting. When you were hyping yourself up, what were you doing? Just looking in the mirror like, are you really going to do this? And I'm like, yeah. Like, so I like, talked to myself. And so you got hyped up and you walked straight out? Walked straight out the bathroom. Shot Sylvia. And once that happened, it was all over. If you had to use one word or two words or three words to describe what you have done in killing those people, what would those words be? It was wrong. It was wrong? Yeah. I shouldn't have killed them. I shouldn't have robbed them. I should have just left them alone. They didn't do nothing to me. If you were to get out again, would you kill? Unless they stood in the way of something. If they was hurting me, I'd kill them, yeah. I'd take no problem. Do you realize how cold that is? Yes. And what do you think of yourself as a result of it? I still have a problem with it. Would you describe yourself as a human being? Yeah. I'm breathing, I'm, my heart's pumping and everything. Do you have a soul? Do you have a conscience? Yeah, I have a soul, I have a conscience. Cares what the people think about me. Should you have killed Sylvia? No, I shouldn't have. Should you have killed Ben? No. Should you have killed Colleen? I shouldn't have killed anybody. I shouldn't have robbed that place. Fact is, I did, though. Should anybody care about you? I really don't care if they do or not. Let me ask it this way Why should anybody care about you? I don't care. You don't understand. I don't care about nobody. I don't care. I don't care about anybody watching it. I don't care. The only people I care about is my family and my friends. That's all I care about. I don't care about nobody else. Do you have nightmares about this? I, I did. What were the nightmares like? Just replay everything that happened. What should your penalty be? If you want to make me hurt, life in jail. But still, I'll figure out how to make that better for me. Why not death? Life in prison because? I gotta sit here and basically rot to death. What happens when you, you say that you believe in life ever after, you believe in heaven, that you believe you go to heaven? What happens when you see Sylvia and Ben and Colleen and Mrs. Colbert in heaven? Hopefully they'll forgive me, but I gotta keep going on. If they don't, I gotta keep going on. I'm not going to let them bring me down. In heaven? Wherever, wherever I meet anybody at, as anybody. Somebody wants to, you know, I want to apologize and stuff, but I can't do nothing about it. That's all I can do. Nathan Dunlap believes the death penalty is used more out of hate and revenge than anything else. If you want to kill me so bad, then come do it. That's my attitude. Isn't that kind of a macho, bravado type thing? It ain't macho to me or nothing, but I'm not saying it's macho or nothing, but... fact is, I killed four people. I almost killed a fifth. I want them dead, and they're dead. Come kill me, then. If you think you, if you think you can take my life, come do it. I'm gonna take yours before you take mine. Jeez, yeah, you weren't kidding. He has no remorse. Mm -hmm. So even though no animatronics came to life, 
this is still a very sad story of four wonderful people who lost their lives. Also, um, if you guys haven't seen Willy's Wonderland on Hulu, I highly recommend it. That, okay, yeah, that's like Five Nights at Freddy's, isn't it? Mm-hmm, it is. But Nick Cage? It's starring Nick Cage. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, in my opinion, Five Nights at Freddy's was not good. It was garbage. <laughs> it was not good at it was, all. <laughs> it was a kid's movie. Yeah, definitely. And I wish it was advertised as a kid's movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Willy's Wonderland, in my opinion, is miles better. So go check that one out. Um, but yeah, that is the story uh, that inspired Five Nights at Freddy's, allegedly. Wow. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> Jeez. Yep. A um, little bit shorter story today, and I apologize, but I, uh, when I found out that it was based off something that actually happened, I was like, ooh, I got to report on this. Yeah. If y'all didn't know that. Also, Colorado. Aurora, Colorado. Aurora, Colorado. Everything it's happens in Colorado. I'm not even kidding. Mm-hmm. Got Any the of you listeners who are in Colorado, move. <laughs> <laughs> At least out of Aurora. Everything happens in Colorado. You got Columbine. You got the movie theater. You got Chris Watts. There's so much. Yeah, but I guess you could say the same about Utah. No, just Colorado. <laughs> just Colorado. Okay. <laughs> wow, what a harrowing story. That's awful. Yeah. Well, um, that's it from me. Do you have anything else? That's it for me. All right, guys. Go watch Willie's Wonderland, and we will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.